Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapter four. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Seeking Truth for our discussion of Genesis chapter 4. Now, remember how God created. He created man and woman in total equality, total equal dignity. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So man and women are equal in the beginning. But after the fall, it was not so, because one of the curses to Eve was that your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. That is not how God intended. That is not how God created, but that's what happened. That was a result of the fall. And so your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's inequality now between the sexes. That is not God's original design. And we always have to remember that. We have to remember what it was like before the fall. In the beginning, it was not so. King Adam, who named all the creatures, will also name Eve now. Adam got named by God. Eve got named by Adam. There's a new chain of command in this disordered world. The man will call his wife's name Eve, which in Hebrew is Hava, which means life. Because she was the mother of all the living, there's just one problem. Her children aren't fully alive because now spiritual death has entered the world. They are spiritually wounded. They were created to be equal partakers of the divine nature of the beloved God, and things have changed. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. Now, remember, they had initially covered themselves with fig leaves right after the fall. They made fig aprons, but God is sending them somewhere else, and fig aprons ain't going to cut it, (laughs) you know? They're going somewhere different than Eden. And so God, in his loving mercy, is going to create for them a clothing all on his own. And uh, modesty is a form of humility for God, and it was an absolute gift to man and woman because the Lord was helping them deal with their shame. He's going to cover their shame. That's how merciful and how loving with his own hand, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. God himself clothed them. He is so merciful. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. I want you to notice east. This is an ordinal direction that we've already heard four times in the first four chapters of Genesis, the direction of east. The Lord God had planted a garden in Eden in the east. The third river was the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden. And tonight, Cain will go away from the presence of the Lord and dwell in the land of Nod, which is further east, east of Eden. 
hey, that's a good title for a book, East of Eden. <laughs> and, and John Steinbeck, one of the most beloved uh, American authors of the 20th century, named one of his novels East of Eden. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, God placed the cherubim. And that cherubim had a flaming sword which turned in every ordinal direction to guard the way. To guard the way to what? To the tree of life. They've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now for some reason God does not want them getting to that tree of life. Well, we thought God loved life. We thought he wanted them to eat life, to know life. We thought he wanted them to get to the tree of life, and now he is going at all measures to guard the tree of life. So he puts a cherubim and a flaming sword in all directions. The Lord drove out the man. Now that seems really extreme. That seems very wrathful of God and very angry of God and very mean of God. And it's that big mean old God of the Old Testament. And why are we studying Genesis? <laughs> right? Seems so mean. He just kicks him out for no good reason. God is expelling. God is banishing. God is kicking out. That's tough love, right? But just the opposite is true. I'm teasing you, and you know my sense of humor. God is kind, and God is loving. God is merciful. God is slow to anger and rich in kindness, abounding in love. So what's up? Why is God prohibiting them? God is really protecting his beloved children, and that is the nature of a father, to protect his family, and he is protecting Adam and Eve. Man's eternal soul has been mortally wounded, Man is now in mortal sin. He used to be immortal. Now he's very mortal. My beloved son and daughter have a mortal wound on their eternal souls that separates us. This sin is separating his beloved children from him, from God. And why did he create them? First sentence in the catechism, to share in his beloved life. I created them. I loved them. I wanted them to share in my own blessed divine life. And now he's going at all odds to, to get them out of there because of plan A. He has this in his mind's eye before the beginning of time. This was his initial omnipotent, almighty, sovereign plan. God the Father speaks with the two other persons of the triune God because God is a family, God is a communion, God is a trinity. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. It's plan A all along. Jesus is already in his mind's eye. It's his forever plan, his forever idea, his forever logos. There was no plan B. Jesus is what the Father is going to go with all along. Their souls are now mortally wounded. He knew they'd eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their souls are mortally wounded. They need the medicine of immortality now more than ever. What's the medicine of immortality? It's in the tree of life. It's in the midst of the garden. They haven't gotten that far into the garden yet. That's where the true presence of God is. They want to eat from the tree of life now for healing. They're mortally wounded. And which person of the Trinity is hidden in the tree of life? That's Jesus Christ. You see him hidden there? That's Jesus Christ. He's the, the second person of the Trinity hidden in the garden. And when he came on earth and became man, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink of his blood, you have no life. 
you're dead. You have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has what? Eternal life. That's what the tree of life is all about. Eternal life, the tree of life. And I will raise him up on the last day and he will do what? Live how long? Forever. So Jesus is that new tree of life. He's hidden in the old, he's revealed in the new, and looking through the hermeneutical lens of Jesus Christ, you understand him in the old. It's a mystery, and he's revealing it to us. He is the tree of life. He is the new Adam. He's the Father's logos, his eternal idea from before the beginning of time. He and only he, he's the only one who can reverse Adam's curse. He's the new Adam. The new tree of life will be his cross. And the new leaves of the tree of life that'll be for the healing of all the nation will be communion. Communion wafers are the leaves of the tree of life. And he's creating a new creation. He says in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. He's going to heal us. He's going to save us. Now it's all over. Now we get those wafers. We get those leaves of the tree of life. Every time you go to Mass, they're at your free disposal. It's bread that satisfies you eternally. You don't have to labor for it. You don't have to work for it. We eat now the tree's leaves. It's Jesus. His work is done. He did it perfectly in perfect obedience to the Father, and he sat down at the Father's right hand. Someone asked, why the right hand? Because the right hand is always for the Jews, the blessing hand. The right hand is the blessing hand, and Jesus has undone the curse and ushered in the Father's greatest right hand blessing for our salvation. Jesus uncursed the cursed ground. He reversed the curse. He ushered in a blessing instead of a curse, the final blessing. And his blood dripped down on the cross, and you see Adam's bones under there. He set Adam free. Adam was trapped in the cursed ground in Hades, in a holding pattern, waiting for a savior. He could not do it himself. And you see he's at the base of the cross, and you'll find old crosses with the skull and crossbone at the bottom. That's Adam's bones. And if you get really, really lucky, there's one with the skull of Eve as well. Adam and Eve, both at the base of the cross. And Jesus' blood, the precious, perfect blood of Jesus Christ, the only blood, that can do this, drips down and frees Adam from his bondage of sin and death and sets him free. And if you go to Jerusalem and if you go to the chapel of the Holy Sepulcher, you'll see a chapel underneath the cross. See where the red arrow is? Where the blood dripped down and the bones of Adam and Eve were down there and they're set free. And below the cross, if you go down the next level, some people miss it. You'll see the chapel of Adam. And it's right, here's where the, the cross is. People venerate the cross and directly below is the chapel of Adam where the blood would have dripped down and set him free. And so that's why we see crosses with the skull and crossbow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is going to uncurse that ground. Christ is called the second Adam by St. Paul a lot. The blood dripping down on the skull of Adam will uncurse the cursed ground and bring Adam and all humanity who believe back into eternal life and eternal communion with God. Jesus is the only one who can save humanity. This is the only blood the Father will accept. It's not Buddha. It's not anyone else. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, how long do you live when you eat from the tree of life? 
That's right. You live forever. Jesus told us that in John 6. You live forever. And so Jesus had not done the work of salvation yet. And he had not yet carried out the Father's perfect plan. And so if they go in there prematurely and pick from the tree of life and eat, they'll live forever. But guess what? They'll live forever separated from God. Because why? Because they have mortal sin on their soul. And if they eat that bread now, they're going to forever be separated from God. You get that? He's not mean. He's super, super, super merciful. Mortal sin always separates us from God. And we do not want to die with mortal sin on our soul. And it's why we don't receive the tree of life when we're in a state of mortal sin. That's why the church has confession on Saturday. You can get your soul clean before you, so you don't condemn, so you don't drink condemnation on your soul by eating from the tree of life and living forever with mortal sin on your soul. How are we now supposed to cover our shame? Because we're still sinners. Even though we have an indwelling Holy Spirit, we still fall, just like our parents did. You get a new garment. You get new clothing at your baptism, a garment of salvation. A white, pure garment of salvation. You're clothed with Jesus Christ. You're baptized into Christ and into the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Has anybody sinned since their baptismal day? Because <laughs> you were washed clean and pure. You were infused with his grace. You got an indelible seal and you sinned. You blew it. Really? Even with an indwelling Holy Spirit that you had at confirmation? Yeah, has anyone sinned since confirmation? Surely. Really? Jesus has an established way for us to be forgiven and set free from the bondage of shame and sin. Even now, even though we have an indwelling Holy Spirit, we still sin. Paul told about it all the time. He said, don't live by the flesh, live by the Spirit. And then he said, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And I do them even when I don't want to do them because of concupiscence. Because we're fallen. We have a fallen nature now. And so when Jesus rose from the dead that very night, he walked in through the doors, through locked doors. Just as he came through Mary's virgin womb without breaking it, he comes through these doors without breaking them, and he breathes on them. He breathes on them. Now, when was the very first time that God breathed on man in Scripture? We just had it. The Lord God breathed into man's nostrils. He breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And what happened to man? He became a living being and he became fully alive because he was a living body, physical and a living soul. He had a corporeal body and a spiritual body and he became a living being the minute God blew into his nostrils. The breath of God is what made man spiritually alive. And the only other time in the entire Bible that God breathes again directly on man is right after the resurrection. This is a really important entry when he comes through locked doors. You know, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? They can't believe it. He's risen from the dead. And what's he going to say? And he breathed on them just like back in Genesis. He breathed on them the breath of life and they became what? spiritually alive. He forgives their sins. He says, peace be with you. And he tells them, and who is in that room? There are 10 men and they are the new priests. They're the new priesthood. Thomas isn't there that night. And Judas isn't there that night. But there are 10 men and they're the new priesthood. And 10 is the number of completion in the scripture. So there's a complete priesthood right there standing in front of him. And he breathes on them and gives them the power to forgive sin. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
God is powerful. He is giving them the power to forgive sin and the power to retain sin. This is the authority of the risen God. This is the authority he's giving to a new priesthood of 10 men who can do something now that only God can do in all the scriptures, and that's forgive sin. Wow, what an important night that was. That the men became spiritually alive again. They are back in communion with God again even in a fallen world. Jesus even said to those 10 lepers we studied in Luke last year, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Even after God, Jesus healed them, he directed them to go show the priests. And it was the priests who declared they were cleansed. So back to Adam and Eve, for now they have to leave the garden for their own protection. That's God's mercy. So God in his greatest, most benevolent love and mercy is keeping them away from that tree of eternal life for now, just for now. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground, which he had taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that's mercy because he did not want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in the state of mortal sin, forever separated from him. It is the merciful will of a merciful God that all should be saved. And so God the Father sends Jesus, the bread of life, the tree of life, to reverse the curse of eating from the bread of knowledge of good and evil that we learned about last week because he's merciful. And because he's loving, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin to clothe them. God is so merciful. He wants to clothe their shame. God covers their sin and cloaks their shame. It's the greatest mercy again. And we see artwork like this before. They grab the fig leaves and cover themselves. They're exiting the garden and God himself has clothed them in these skins. And we think, you know, What were these skins made of, right? What did God use for garments of skin? And we see paintings like this. Oh, we get it. Oh, someone had to die to get those skins. Who had to die? One of God's animals that he gave Adam dominion over. We see paintings that look like animal skins all the time. So in our mind, we always think it's animal skins. And we say, well, maybe God was teaching them to offer blood as a sacrifice to God for the atonement of sin. Because the rest of the Old Testament, it'll be blood offering. He'll start teaching them. His pedagogy goes and goes and goes and goes and it's blood and blood and blood and blood. Adam was a king and now Adam's also going to be a priest. And he's going to be the mediator of the sacrifice between God and man. That's what a priest does. That God might accept their sacrifice from their contrite hearts for the atonement of their sin. Now remember, when we learned in Genesis 1 that God is uncreated light. And he is unchangeable light. And he's true light from true light, right? Remember that? If God is light and man is made in God's image and God's likeness, And they were luminous in the glory of God because they were walking with God the Father. And you know how Moses got radiant when he would see God. And and they're luminous in this original glory. Maybe they looked more like this. Maybe Adam and Eve, our first parents in this beautiful poetic allegory, looked more like this. That's what some of the rabbis write about. And we know from Psalm 104, Oh, my Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty who covers thyself with light as a garment. And they were created in 
God's image with light as a garment. Perhaps our first parents were clothed in garments of luminous light, not like the artists have painted them over the years in their imaginations. Many rabbis believe that Adam and Eve being made in the image of God uh, were made clothed in light. And, and they went from being clothed in light to being clothed now in human skin. That at the moment of the fall, after God was going to banish them out of Eden, he covered them with human skin, not animal skins, human skins. They were blobs of light before that. Now he covers them with human skin because he's so merciful. Why would he do that? The human epidermis is the largest organ of your body, and it's made up of three layers, the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis. And it's a very protective. The epidermis layer is a very protective barrier to infection from environmental pathogens. They are moving. They're not needing anymore. They're moving. They're being banished outside the garden. Everything's going to be different. And God clothes them with skin. Now, according to the Hebrew Midrash, uh, the remnant of Adam and Eve's clothing. Originally, Adam and Eve were clothed with translucent nail-like suits, fingernail-like suits that served as clothing. And there's a custom when, when uh, they do Shabbat prayer, Sabbath prayer, to gaze upon the fingernails through the candlelight, to remember that we once were luminous. We had translucent skin and all, this all that we have left now is our nails. That's one thing they think. And the women have a very active part in Shabbat prayer in the household, right? You, if you saw Fiddler on the Roof, may the Lord protect and defend you. And, and she's praying. The women, uh, some sources characterize the women candlelighting as a rectification, a tikkun for Eve's sin, just as the biblical figure diminished the light of the world through her sin in the Garden of Eden. Women can return light to the world through every week lighting the Shabbat candles in their household and welcoming the light of God back into their homes. So just something to think about, but made in the image and likeness of God after the fall, that image faded. They had sinned. They're not as much like God anymore. The likeness was tarnished and their intellects became darkened through sin. And so perhaps these luminous, original, glorious blobs of light that are now sent out and clothed in skin. But the thing about that is it just, the skin just tones down the light of God. It's still in there. Every person is still created in the image and light of God, but now it's really been toned down and covered with skin. Why would that be important? One thing, it's a disguise for Satan. We'll get to that later. They're banished you know, Satan can't identify every blob of light now, everyone that lives for Christ because you have skin on. They are banished out of mercy so that they don't pick from the tree and eat and get eternally separated from God. This is plan A all along. God had this savior in mind, his son for redemption before he created the human family. There's one problem and follow the arrow. Someone goes with them. Someone else gets kicked out of Eden. And guess who it is? Mr. Nasty Pants. Yes, the snake. <laughs> and I laugh, but it's very serious. If you look at artwork, you'll see the snake goes with them. The snake is with them. The sna There's a big chasm now between them and God. See, they can't get back to the other side. There's one thing that'll get back to the other side. Jesus will lay his cross over the chasm and everyone will be able to get back to the Father by the new tree of life. But Satan is on their side now and Jesus tells us in John 14 that Jesus uh, called Satan the ruler of this world. 
And he now is ruling this disordered world. And everything's topsy-turvy. They've been banished from paradise. They're in their new world with Satan, sin, and death. Wow. It's going to be great. Welcome to the other side. (laughs) Satan exited Eden with them. Leaving behind FaceTime with God the Father and that hidden trinity. They didn't really know about it yet, but Jesus was there. He was the tree of life in the very middle of the garden. We don't even know if they got that far in. But the river of life was flowing from the tree of life and splitting in four directions, north, south, east, west. Now they've been banished, banished from all that. They're away from the almighty, sacred, true presence of God. They're out on their own. And wow, that must have been different. I love that photo. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. They know what this means now. When they can't talk directly with God whenever they want, they're, they, they look at each other that they've been banished. They're away from God. He, he looks, they, all they have is each other. So they cling now like never before they cling to one another. And they cling in a one flesh marital way. Male and female, God created them in his own image and likeness. It's very Trinitarian. And they have a one flesh marital embrace. And that is the biggest gift of God. God has given them a wonderful gift in marriage. Male and female open to life. He gives them the opportunity to procreate, to become co-creators with the Almighty God. Man donates the seed. Woman will donate the egg. God will breathe his own breath of life and make a new spirit, a new baby, a new child, a a new person. It's very Trinitarian. And They're in this one flesh clinging. And for that one split second, for that one moment in time, they are actually imaging the Trinity. They are reflecting the almighty God. And for a moment, time must have stopped. It was so sweet. It was like they were with God again. And they felt as though they had never left Eden or God's presence. And that all was well in the garden. And that's what marital love is. It is a gift. It's a reflection of God. And for a moment in time, you know that everything is well in the perfect marital love that's pure and holy and good and true. It's a gift from God. And nine months later, a third and unique person vibrates out of their love. A baby is conceived and born. So the gift of marital love from God is when two persons become one person in united flesh, open to three persons, very Trinitarian. And in their one flesh clinging, all was right in the world. And I know you know that you've had those times in your marriage where you came together in the most holy, perfect, pure way, and you were in Eden for a moment, and all was right in the world. And then you wake up, right? (laughs) And then, and then, and then, and then what? Back to reality. They live in a fallen, disordered, broken world. And they're wounded by sin. They are the first exiles. They are the first immigrants. Banished. They are the first exodus. The first departure. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. And in the Hebrew, that is yada. And that's the the marital embrace. It's the most intimate relationship, the marital embrace that is good, pure, holy, where you really know you have knowledge of someone else, biblical knowledge and intimate knowing. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapter four, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.